Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Let's return to the book of Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians chapter 1, Paul's Ode to Joy, Paul's Song of Joy in Christ Jesus. And I would encourage you this morning to examine your heart, your mind, your spirit, and ask yourself, what brings me joy in life? Maybe you don't have joy in your life today. Maybe situations and circumstances and so on and so forth have kind of uh, put you in a bummer mood, as we would say. Uh, maybe things are kind of blasé. Understand there's a difference between joy and happiness. There are a lot of people who are Christian people who are not happy by what's going on in our world today. But happiness is based on circumstances, whereas joy is based on relationships. And I know practically all of us understand that. Um, when there is a certain someone in your life that you want to be around, that you want to share things with, maybe even share your life with, that brings you joy. You can't wait to be with that person again. You can't wait to share new ideas and new experiences. You can't wait to uh, uh, do things together, go places together. We know what that joy is really all about. But what happens when that person is no longer with you? What happens when that person uh, does not desire to be with you again? Then that joy kind of hits the skids and it uh, crashes in on the rocks. But there is one person who will give you greater joy than any other person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. Because that's his promise. He said there is, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul said, There is nothing in heaven, on earth, or beneath the earth. There is nothing in the past, present, or future. There is nothing in all of creation that will separate you from the love of God. And if that's something that you're missing today, I invite you to Jesus. I ask you to consider Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Because again, in troubled times, in troubled times that we're going through when there's political wrangling and there's economic upheaval and there's violence everywhere and it, as I was sharing with uh, one of the deacons in our prayer time, everything seems to be upside down, inside out, back to front. And most of us are really wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow because I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who's going to lead me through if there is a tomorrow and every other tomorrow that lies ahead. I have that confidence. I like the passage of Scripture that David quoted. I like the full passage. I know in whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What have I committed to him? I've committed my life to him. I've committed my soul to him. I've committed all that I am to him. And he has promised that he will keep that to the day when he appears to take us home. So I'm not concerned about tomorrow. 
And I know that to be true because Jesus has become my Lord and Savior. I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I've committed my life to him. And every day I strive to live for him. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of this of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading of his word. We're looking at elements of joy. Elements of joy. We've taken a look at a number of elements of joy in Sunday's past. This morning I want us to focus our attention on remembrance. Remembrance. An element of joy in these five verse, first five verses have to do with remembering. Remembering. How good is your memory this morning? How good is your memory this morning? You have to take your wallet out, look at your picture and your driver's license to remember who you are. Hmm? Yeah? Memories. What are memories? What are memories? Memories are kind of a hard thing to define. If you were asked to write down what uh, your definition of memories are or what a memory is, you know, what would you say? Well, I, I struggled with that for a while because I know what they are through experience, but I, I don't know how to put the words together to define them. So I had to consult uh, a psychologist, somebody who knows about the brain. And I didn't consult them about my brain. I, I consulted them about the definition of memory. And the definition that was given to me, I think, is a great definition. It's there in your sermon notes. Memories are powerful mosaics. I like that word mosaic. Because it, it, it means a whole bunch of stuff. A mosaic is a picture of many different colors and uh, many different images. Memories are a powerful mosaic of people and events in life that mold and shape who we are. When you think about the events of your life and the people of your life that have impacted you, that have helped to mold and shape you into the person that you are today, those memories of those events and those people 
are a powerful mosaic in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. You think about those things. You reflect on those things. You once again examine those things. You appreciate them once again. Those are what memories are all about. And this psychologist said that there are basically three processes that are involved in making memories. The first one is encoding, taking in information. There's stimuli all around us, sights and sounds, smells, things that we touch, textures all around us, people who come into our sphere of influence, people who leave our sphere of influence, all kinds of stimuli, all kinds of information that's all around us. The first step in making memories are allowing those stimuli to come in to our life, into our mind. Encoding, taking in information. Then there is storing that information. Your brain stores that information, preserving that information, primarily in the brain. And then there is retrieving, the ability to recall that information. There's encoding, there is storing, there is retrieving. Now, there are a number of caveats to this. And the first one is simply this, making memories is not a flawless process. It's not a flawless process. Sometimes the information gets confused and jumbled while we're trying to take it in. Too many things are going on all at once and the brain can't process it correctly. And so we get confused. Is this what I heard? Is this what I saw? Is, is this what I really smelled? Is this, was this the texture of what I really felt? If too many things are going on, and we're all well acquainted with this because of the lives that we're living, the sights and the sounds and the smells and everything else going on all at once sometimes, when we try to take that information in, it becomes very confusing, and the brain can't sort that out. Sometimes... The information is not stored properly. And that's a problem that I have. Uh, there, are, there are individuals, I, I, I don't know any, but I've heard of them. There are individuals who have photographic memory. Those people scare me. Photographic, they can look at something once and they can remember it forever. I'm told that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher in London, England in the 1800s, had a photographic memory. He had thousands of books in his library. And at any given moment, if somebody asked him what so-and-so had written, he could point out where the book was. He could point out the chapter and the page and the paragraph where that information was at. He never forgot a name. He never forgot a face. Even after several years had passed by, he always remembered the names of individuals and the faces of individuals. But sometimes, for those of us who are normal, sometimes the information isn't stored properly in the brain. What we 
see and what we hear is not really what happened. It's not really what occurred. Because that information, though we did see something and though we did hear something, it wasn't stored properly in the brain. And sometimes we can't retrieve the information. We forget things. How many of you forget things? We forget things all the time. And so when we're asked on a witness stand or when we're asked by another individual what, what really took place, uh, hmm, well, you know, I was there, but I don't really know what happened. And so we have problems. The, the, the memory-making process is flawed in a lot of us. Memory problems can be minor, such as, you know, forgetting where you parked your car. Forgetting your keys. Forgetting to pay the PG&E bill. But they can also be major, like forgetting who you are or forgetting where you are. Not remembering something that's very, very important to your well-being. Sometimes memory fails because we don't pay attention to the information. I used to do that a lot in school teacher would be teaching and I wasn't really paying attention I had a problem at seminary I might as well go ahead and tell you this when Golden Gate Seminary uh, the graduate school where I attended in San Francisco well really out, out on Strawberry Point uh, Golden Gate Seminary the, had two major well three major buildings there was uh, the library there was the um, offices and the professor's uh, offices and then next to it over next to the bay up on a hill next to the bay um, was the educational facility where all the classrooms were and all of the classrooms that faced the bay had these huge bay windows from roof, from, from ceiling to floor. Huge bay windows. I tell you what, on a summer afternoon, taking classes was an extremely difficult thing to do, especially when there were sailboats out on the bay. It was very easy to daydream. It was very easy to let your mind wander. It was very easy to say, rather than listening to this boring professor, I'd rather be out there on the sailboat out in the bay. So not paying attention to the information can be a problem, especially if the information is not important. Some of you had to take classes in school that you really didn't want to take classes. There were a lot of classes I didn't want to take, but they were required. And it's not that I failed those classes, but I didn't do as well as I should have done that I could have done because I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in the information. And that's a problem with a lot of people. It's a problem with a lot of teenagers. Sometimes memory fails due to the passing of time. When we kind of get long in the tooth, it's hard to remember 
those earlier days. It's hard to remember those earlier events. Sometimes memory fails because of diseases to the brain, like dementia, and the various aspects of the various types of dementia, including Alzheimer's. Sometimes memory fails because of damage to the brain, like severe concussion or drug abuse, tumor or stroke or some other malady that affects the brain. No one among us is perfect in our ability to remember things. And that's why we've created devices to help us remember, right? We make documents. We write stuff down so that we will remember what, it, what was said and, and what was done. Contracts and wills and uh, family histories and those kinds of things. We write those down. Problem is, we forget where we put them. And so we have other devices like photographs. We have movies. We have voice recordings and other things that help us remember the things of the past. Some people remember past events when they visit certain places or revisit certain people. When they hear an old familiar song, when they wear or they see a particular piece of clothing, or when a particular odor strikes them, such as mom's home cooking or dad's workshop. They spark memories. They cause us to recall things in days gone by. All of us know that memories can be painful. Memories can be painful, especially when we recall our losses in life, the loss of a loved one or a friend, the loss of a job, the loss of financial resources, the loss of integrity. When tragedies strike, when a certain event takes place that destroys like a hurricane or a flood or a tornado or an earthquake, and we lose things in that horrible event, or when we experience failures in our lives. We can experience a number of different things that are painful when we remember them. Memories can also be sentimental. Memories can always be sentimental, reflecting on better days when life was good and all things were as they should be. One of the fun things about the TV series Happy Days. It was a series on the good days after the war was over and things were settling back down and Richie Cunningham and the Fonz and Ralph Mouth and all of the other guys, they were carefree, the life that they enjoyed. Everything was as it ought to have been. Everything was as it should have been. But that's television. Memories can be sentimental. And memories can be joyful. 
thinking on things that were accomplished, things that we had planned and our plans were achieved, our goals were met, can bring us joy when we think back on those things. Well, the Apostle Paul, here in verse 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippian church says, Every time I think of you, I thank God. And whenever I mention you in my prayers, it makes me happy. It fills me with joy when I think about you. And remember, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter to a church several hundred miles away. And from his prison cell... He remembers his experiences with these people and the joy that they brought to him when he was with them and the joy that continued to flood his soul now that he remembers them. And here we have three reasons that the Apostle Paul rejoices upon remembering the church at Philippi. First of all, he says that he rejoices when he remembers their participation in the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. Look at verses 4 and 5. Well, go back up to verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul rejoiced in remembering a church that was sold out to Jesus Christ and was actively involved in ministering the gospel. Now, it wasn't always that way. Paul remembered the first time he entered into the town. It was the first place he stopped to minister the gospel in Europe. Previously, he was in Asia Minor, what, was, what is now Turkey and a couple of the other countries in around that area. But he crossed over the sea, and now he is in Europe. And Philippi is where he stops to take the gospel to task in the hearts and the minds of the people. And he was excited. He was excited about coming to this place, and he was excited about sharing the gospel with these people being the first individual to share the good news of Jesus Christ in Europe. But Philippi was a godless place. It was a Roman colony. And the primary worship that was exercised in that town, that was practiced in that town, was emperor worship. Most of the cities and the towns in the Roman Empire worshipped the emperor. They believed that he was God in human flesh. And they erected temples to him, and they uh, gave offerings to him, and they honored every word that he spoke. They worshipped the emperor as God. Now in Philippi, there, were, there was a small group of Jews in that colony, but there were not enough Jewish men to build a synagogue. So the Jews did not have a place of worship in Philippi because you, uh, Jewish law said you had to have at least 10 men, Jewish men, in a place in order to uh, erect a synagogue. 
But this didn't deter Paul. You see, Paul, in all of the towns where Paul would go, he would look out for the Jews first. He would find the synagogue in the town, and he would go there first because he believed that because Jesus Christ was born of the Jews and that Jesus Christ brought the gospel to the Jews first, then it was his responsibility as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Jews first. And so he would search until he found the synagogue in the town, and he would then begin to share the gospel with the Jews in and around the synagogue. But there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. And so nix that one. Can't do that. So what did he do? Well, it didn't deter him. He didn't give up. He didn't shrug his shoulders and say, ah, shucks, and then move on to the next town. No. He found where the Jewish people were congregating. If, if, they're not, if there's not a church building where they go to worship, then I'm going to go find where they uh, collect, where they gather together, and I'm going to share the gospel with them there. And so he finds himself down by the Zygaxtis River, where a group of Jewish women gathered together uh, to be with each other to pray. And so the Apostle Paul approaches these women, and he begins to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And as a result of his sharing the gospel, some of these women became Christian women. And one notable individual in that group was a woman named Lydia. She was a wealthy woman. She was a merchant. And her trade was in the buying and selling of rare and expensive purple cloth. She was saved. She invited the Apostle Paul to her home. He shared the gospel with them. Her entire household became Christian. And she invited Paul and Silas then to have Bible study in her home. And bingo, the first Christian church in Europe was established in Philippi. This woman would prove to be a blessing to the Apostle Paul in supporting him financially, encouraging him, and she would also be instrumental in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to begin. Remember, she is a merchant, and so she travels from city to city, from town to town, buying and selling this rare and expensive purple cloth. And wherever she would go, she would tell people about Jesus. And there are some people who believe that Lydia was responsible for starting the Christian church in Rome. We do not have any factual basis for that, but Christian legend tells us that she was responsible for starting the Christian church in Rome. Later on in Philippi, the Apostle Paul meets a young girl who is a slave, and she's demon-possessed. She is a sorceress. She is a witch. Uh, her particular expertise is fortune-telling. And she made a lot of money for her handler, by telling people's fortunes. And so when the Apostle Paul met up with this girl, she immediately turned to him and she began to shout to the people, these are the men of God. These are the followers of Jesus Christ. 
And wherever Paul and Silas would go in town, this girl would follow them and and she would be shouting out, these are followers of Jesus Christ. These men are men of God. And Paul became annoyed by that. And so he turned to her and he rebuked the demon and he cast the demon out of her. And that very moment, the young girl, the teenager, she was saved. She became a Christian. Well, her handler didn't like that because there goes his money-making scheme. And so he went to the magistrates and he raised a stink and the magistrates arrested Paul and Silas and threw them in jail. Now, most of us, if that would happen to us, again, we would be bummed by that. We'd say, oh man, you know, what is this? You know, one step forward, two steps back. Every time I try to make... Uh, you know, a headway with the gospel, you know, there's always somebody putting a roadblock in my path. And many of us would give up and say, forget this, I'm going back home. Not the Apostle Paul. Not Silas. They were thrown in prison. And they were put in chains. And in prison, they began to pray. And they began to sing hymns. They began to sing songs. All afternoon, all into the evening until midnight, God sent an earthquake. The jail shook. The doors to the jail were opened. The chains fell off. And the jailer, in fear for his life, because Roman law says, if you're in the custody of a criminal and that criminal escapes, you forfeit your life. And so the jailer was afraid that the prisoners had escaped and he was going to be brought before the emperor and he would be executed. And so he took out his sword and he was ready to fall on his sword when the apostle Paul said, don't hurt yourself. All of us are here. Nobody has escaped. And the jailer looked at Paul and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? Now why would he ask a question like that? He was a jailer. He had seen the riffraff of the city he had rubbed shoulders and elbows with people who were criminals and, uh, you know, who were despised by uh, more decent society. Well, this jailer, you know, he had to stay in the jail. And he couldn't change the radio dial. All he listened to all day long was the Apostle Paul and Silas praying out loud to the Lord God, singing songs to the Lord God, and now in a crisis, he realizes that his life is in jeopardy. And yet the Apostle Paul and Silas said, Hey, we didn't run for cover. We didn't run to the hills. We're all here. Don't hurt yourself. There was something about the testimony of the Apostle Paul and Silas in their praying and in their singing that drew this man to Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he did. And he was. And he invited Paul and Silas to his house. And Paul had the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in the jailer's house. And all of them were saved as well. Paul rejoiced in remembering the power of the gospel and the effect that it had on people that he encountered in a godless city called Philippi. 
And every situation where God opened the door for the Apostle Paul to share the gospel, he shared the gospel. And after sharing the gospel, these people became hungry to know more about Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul had the opportunity to meet in their homes and to engage in Bible study and prayer and worship. Those of you who are Christians here at First Baptist Church, you were brought to faith in Jesus Christ through someone else. You were brought to faith in Jesus Christ by someone else. Maybe you heard the gospel through me or through Pastor David or Pastor Chris or Pastor Joe. Maybe you trusted in Jesus Christ through the ministry of a deacon or a Bible teacher or a friend. And you've come to this church to worship the Lord and to serve the Lord in this place and in this community. We rejoice in having you with us. We are glad in heart that you are here as a Christian and that you've come to be a part of this fellowship and to enlist yourself in serving the Lord Jesus Christ in this place and in this community. We rejoice in knowing that the Holy Spirit of God is among us and working in us and working through us to reach this community for Jesus Christ. We rejoice that you pray for us and that you pray with us, that you share the gospel with Jesus Christ, uh, you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people and you bring them to faith in our Lord. We rejoice that Many of you have surrendered to preach the gospel, to teach in our Bible study groups, to minister to new brothers and sisters in the Lord by discipling them in the faith. We rejoice in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and is doing in our fellowship. And you can rejoice in these things also. You can rejoice with us because every soul that comes to faith and grows to maturity in Jesus Christ is a result of your ministry with us. Paul remembered the gospel ministry that was conducted in Philippi when he was with them and it brought him great joy. But there is a second thing. that sparked that joy in the Apostle Paul and he mentions that in this book there's joy when he remembered their love for him when he remembered their love for him listen a contentious and a combative church destroys Christian joy amen Amen? When you say amen, you're saying, that's right. A contentious and a combative church destroys Christian joy. It does. But a compassionate and caring church develops and demonstrates Christian joy. Would you rather go to a church that's always fighting 
with everybody baring their teeth at each other and looking crossways at each other and backbiting? Or would you rather go to a, ch a church where people are happy and there's joy in that fellowship and people are excited about being together? The rest of you wake up, okay? This is your opportunity to participate, all right? Paul wrote this letter to this church because he loved this church, and he knew that that church loved him as well. He thought about them, and in thinking about their love for him, this joy welled up within him once again. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. How so? Well, we've already mentioned one, because of their participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. But also, because they grew in faith and they grew in spiritual maturity through their love for Jesus and through their love one for another. You see, they took seriously the commandment of Jesus Christ when he said, this is the commandment that I leave with you, and that is that you love one another. Hereby shall all men know that you are my disciples because you love one another. The Christian church is to be marked by the love that we have for Jesus Christ and the love that we have for each other. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It just simply means that we are loved. Amen? Don't you feel good in knowing that someone loves you? Don't you? When someone comes up to you, and it may not necessarily be your wife or your husband or your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad, but when someone in the fellowship of the church approaches you and says, you know what, you know, I just really, I love you. Doesn't that make you feel good? Some of you aren't feeling good. It ought to make you feel good. Maybe somebody's not loving on you enough. Maybe you're not loving on someone enough. These people responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were saved in bringing other people to faith in Jesus Christ. These people were in love with Jesus Christ and they were loving one another in Jesus Christ. Now in this letter, if you've been reading this letter like I've asked you to do, in this letter you're not going to find any major spiritual issues in this church. The Apostle Paul does not rebuke this church for anything that's out of order. He's not going to criticize this church. He's not going to try to correct this church because there are things going on in this church that are displeasing to God. You're not going to find that in this letter at all. Why? Because these people loved Jesus and these people loved each other. A church that is contentious and cantankerous a people that cannot get along with each other, it, that is the result of them not loving Jesus as they should and certainly not loving each other as they should. And there's far too many churches that are not experiencing joy in the Lord because they do not love the Lord and they do not love each other as they should. Paul had a problem with Corinth. 
and he told them about it. There was a moral issue going on in Corinth and Paul had to correct it. Paul was not happy with the church at Thessalonica. They had a theological problem. Those folks were believing that the rapture uh, of the Christian church had already come and they missed it. And so they were all down in the mouth because they thought that the Lord had already come and, and you know, they didn't go. Paul had a problem with the churches of Galatia because they were turning away from their faith in Jesus Christ and they were going back to the old ways of life. Paul had to correct Corinth. Paul had to correct the churches of Galatia. Paul had to correct the church at Thessalonica. But he didn't have to correct any problem in the church at Philippi. Why? Because of their love for Jesus Christ and their love for each other. Look at Philippians chapter 2. You're in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, so turn right and go to chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, the apostle writes, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You know what the definition of love is in this letter to the Philippians? That's it. When you love others... You elevate them above yourself. When you truly love other people, you're more concerned about them than you are concerned about yourself. Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness, that's humility, in humbleness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And the Philippian church did exactly that. That's what they were about. They did not come to church saying, this is all about me. This is all about the new suit I'm wearing. This is all about my new Easter hat. This is all about the things that I've done this week. This is all about the sermons that I wrote. This is all about the Bible studies that I've led. This is all about the number of people I brought to faith in Jesus Christ. No. When the Philippian people came to fellowship, they said, brother, this is all about you because it's all about Jesus. It's all about you because it's all about Jesus. I love the Lord and I love you. It's not about me at all. As a pastor, I can testify that serving in a church that is ministering effectively the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is growing spiritually is one of the greatest joys that I've ever experienced. When a church is firing on all cylinders when they're sharing the gospel with lost people, when they're encouraging brothers and sisters in the Lord, when they're coming to worship and they're truly worshiping the Lord, and you can see it on their face, you can hear it in their voice, when they're excited about the kingdom of Christ and what the Lord is doing in their lives and the lives of other people, it becomes a real joy to minister in that church. When Christians love each other, when they care for each other, when they cooperate with each other, when they celebrate the Lord together, there's nothing like that. 
There's nothing like that. You want to be a part of that church. You rejoice in that church and you want your friends and your neighbors to be a part of that experience as well. But when a church is divided, when people get crossways with each other, when every meeting of the church is like a business meeting, there's some place you'd rather be. And I know that because most of you don't show up for business meetings. <laughs> you'd rather be somewhere else. Believe me, I would rather be somewhere else as well. Listen, no church is perfect. And if you're looking for a perfect church, stop looking now. You'll never find one. My mother used to say, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> she said that to me. You're never going to find the perfect church. But when the Holy Spirit of God is actively involved in that fellowship, and when the membership of that church is filled with the Holy Spirit and yields to the power and to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then issues and problems will never touch their joy in Jesus Christ. Now think with me for just a minute. Let's just back away from the Bible for a second. And let's just think about life. Everything that is alive goes through life cycles, right? Everything that lives goes through life cycles. People go through life cycles. You've gone through life cycles. I've gone through life cycles. There are periods in time when we are growing, we're experiencing, we're enjoying Life is brand new every day. Things are exciting. Can't wait to get up and get to it. But then there are also days when things are flat. When things seem to stagnate. When nothing is going on that really excites or motivates us. When we'd rather just stay in bed and let the day go by. Then there are greater life cycles. There's infancy, adolescence teenage years, young adulthood, median adulthood, senior adulthood. We go through those cycles as well. All living things go through life cycles. We have our ups and downs. We have our advancements. We have our setbacks. Families go through life cycles. Young marrieds. Then children come along. Then raising the kids and then empty nesters, grandkids, spoiling the grandkids and sending them home with their moms and dads to appreciate what we've done to their kids. Life cycles. Plants and animals go through life cycles as well. And churches go through life cycles. Churches go through life cycles. But in the midst of life cycles, when things are not going very well in the church, when things seem flat, when nothing really excites us, when we'd rather stay at home than go down to the corner of Myrtle and McConnell and join with other people in a worship service, 
Where is our joy? What causes a church to rejoice in Jesus Christ when they're down in the valley? When there is no advancing but we're facing setbacks? What causes a church to rejoice in Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to the question is life in Jesus Christ. Jesus never promised us sunny days every day. He never promised that life would be a bed of roses. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Happy are you, blessed are you, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because that's how they treated the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus didn't say, happy are you if. Jesus said, happy are you when. He was telling his disciples that there will become dark days in your life and in your ministry. There will be days of setback. There will be days when you will be ostracized, when you will be hated, when you will be cursed, when you'll be thrown in prison, and all of you are going to die because of me. But he said, happy are you. You're not happy because of the circumstances. You rejoice because of the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ in the midst of those circumstances. When the church is facing hardship and heartache, where is the joy? What causes the joy? Uh, um, what causes the church to rejoice in Jesus Christ? Our life in Jesus Christ. That's what causes our joy. And what enhances. And what enlarges our joy in Jesus Christ when things are going right, when it's smooth sailing, when we're hitting on all cylinders, what enhances and enlarges that joy? Our continued life in Jesus Christ. In other words, dear friends, we have no joy without Jesus. And when everything is falling apart and the world is going to a very hot place in a handbasket, we can still rejoice in our spirit because we know that our Lord has all things in the palms of His hand. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, the apostle says. God is working all things together for my good to those who are called according to His purposes. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that final day. I have no reason to be down in the mouth. I have no reason to be a sourpuss. I have no reason to doubt. I have no reason to fear. I have no reason to despair. I have the Lord Jesus Christ living in me and looking out for me. What did... Peter and John say to the elders when the elders called them in and told them we want you to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Peter and John stood boldly up and said I don't care what you say we're going to preach and teach Christ Jesus we would rather obey God than to obey men all churches will have issues and all churches will have problems because the church is a living entity. It's the body of Christ. But a spiritually mature church will address and resolve what problems, what issues they face, and they will do it with joy. 
A spiritually mature church does not major on the minors. A spiritually mature church does not allow the negatives to fester and infect and cause the church to become spiritually sick. Paul rejoiced that the Philippian church ministered the gospel to their friends and neighbors and their families. And they made sure that all who came into the fellowship were Christian and were involved in the spiritually growing process. But then there's this third thing that caused Paul to rejoice in that Philippian church. And it was, his, it was their support for him. Look at chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Philippians 4 through 18. Excuse me. Philippians 4, 14 through 18. Right at the very end of the book of Philippians. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. His distress was being in prison, not being able to fellowship with the Christian church. That was distressing to him. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, that's Greece, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even, the Th even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Even when I was over in Thessalonica, the Philippian church, you guys took care of me. You provided for me. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The church supported Paul. Wherever he traveled, the church made sure that he had enough money to take care of of his needs. And now that Paul is in prison in Rome, the church at Philippi has not forgotten the Apostle Paul, but they sent one of their leaders, Epaphroditus, and they said, Epaphroditus, we want you to go and we want you to take this money to the Apostle Paul and make sure that all of his needs are being met. And Epaphroditus took the money and he traveled hundreds of miles to Rome to be with the Apostle Paul in prison. And he gave him that money. Now you may very well say, well, what's Paul going to do with money in jail? Well, Epaphroditus did more than just deliver the money from Philippi. He also took that money and he bought supplies. He bought medicines. I'm sure he bought medicines to take care of Paul, who was beaten while he was in jail. I'm sure he bought food for the Apostle Paul because food is not always the best in an incarcerated situation. I'm sure that he bought clothing for the Apostle Paul because he traveled a lot and his clothes would wear out. But more than doing these kinds of things, the Apostle Paul says, Epaphroditus ministered to me. He was a friend from that church, a Christian friend from that church. And he would meet with Paul and pray with Paul and pray for Paul. And he would encourage the Apostle Paul. It's great to have friends like that, isn't it? Isn't it? It's great to have friends who are looking out for you. Friends who will encourage you when things are not going so well. Friends who will pray with you and pray for you. I have a Bible study on 
line on Wednesday evenings. It's a Zoom class. We're going through the book of Hebrews. And in our Wednesday evening class, we've had some people join our church that haven't been here in this church for many, many years because they've moved to other places. Ed and Kalita Brown, some of you remember Ed and Kalita Brown, they join our Wednesday night Bible study. They live in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Pat Old, some of you remember Pat Old. Um, he lives in Bossier City, Louisiana. He joins us on Wednesday evening for our Bible study, uh, plus a number of other individuals. And, and when we meet, when they first came online a couple of weeks ago, they were excited to see us again. Because in Zoom, you know, you not only hear each other, but you also see each other. And they were excited to see us once again. And they were asking, well, how is so-and-so? And what's going on here? And what's, doing, what's the church doing there? So they were excited about what's going on in the church and what's going on with the church people that they were a part of when they were here in Winton many, many years ago, some 30 years ago. They still remember you. They still remember the church. And that was one of the things that Paul rejoiced in when Epaphroditus came from Philippi. I'm sure he was asking questions. How are things going, Epaphroditus? How are things going with the church? How's old so-and-so going? How are the leaders of the church doing? How's Lydia? How is that little demon-possessed girl that was saved? What about the Philippian jailer? How's he doing? All of these things brought joy to Paul because he remembered these people. And they remembered him. And they supported him. And they encouraged him. The Philippian church supported the Apostle Paul when no other church would. No other church did. So part of the reason the Apostle Paul wrote this letter was to say, I have received your gift. Thank you. And I'm reminded of your love for me because of it. So now, in closing... Why and how can a church rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the days that we're living in, when there's so much stuff going on that's negative and hurtful and creates anxiety in so many of us? How can a church rejoice in the Lord? Well, first of all, by remembering what the church is. We are not a religious social group like a lot of other churches are. We are a body in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We remember that in Christ Jesus we are called to joy. We are called to rejoice in Him. And we can experience that joy in Him when we know Him as Lord and Savior. And we can experience that joy. It's enhanced and it's enlarged in us when we not only love Him as Lord and Savior, but we love one another as we should when we involve each other in our Christian life experiences, in our ministries, when we say, hey, come alongside me. We're going to go visit so-and-so and, -so, and I want you to come along. Well, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know how to... That's all right. While I'm sharing the, the gospel, you pray. You sit there and you pray for us that that person will hear and receive the good news. Or come on over to the house. We haven't been together in a long time. Come to the house and let's sit down and let's just talk about what the Lord's doing in your life, what the Lord is doing in my life. 
Some of you are leaders in the church. What joy you can bring into someone else's life when you say, hey, you know, I see you in church every Sunday, and, uh, you know, but I don't see you actively involved in anything else. Why don't you join me in the ministry that I've got? Maybe join my finance team or join, you know, uh, my deacon team or, you know, join the property and space team or join some other team, the women's fellowship or the men's fellowship. Why don't you just come along and join us and experience what God is doing in us and with us? Do you know what joy? you'll be bringing to someone when you involve another person in what you're doing in Christ? We've lost that. We've lost that. Each of us, each of us and all of us must learn to involve ourselves in what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in the fellowship of the church. In Galatians 5, you don't need to turn there. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul tells the churches of Galatia, walk in the Spirit. And the word walk simply means to live. Live in the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit live in you. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh, for the flesh has desires that are against the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has desires that are against the flesh. And these are contrary to each other, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Bitterness, unforgiveness, always remembering the evil things and holding grudges against people. These are all the works of the flesh, not the works of the Holy Spirit of God. And these are the things that disrupt the fellowship. Rather, the Apostle Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul wrote, every time I think of you, I thank God. And whenever I mention you in my prayers, I rejoice. One of the great elements that add to one's Christian joy is to remember. To remember those who participated in the gospel with you. To remember those whom you love and who love you. To remember those who support you and encourage you, pray for you, and build you up so that you can do the ministry Christ has called you to do. Remember. Remember. And in remembering, rejoice. Rejoice. David, if you will, please. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you hope, not to harm you. Plans for a great future. Amen. Let's stand together. Stand together. <clears throat> and let's just sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.